Father God, we're here this morning to worship you. We're here to celebrate who you are. We're here to thank you and praise you, Father. So may that happen this morning as we go into your word. Father, we're going to go into a lot of passages, so we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that is the Bible. But Father, may we focus on you this morning. May you free us from distractions, and may you be glorified. And all God's people said, We're kind of transitioning, and if you notice the decorations that we brought your attention to, we're, we're transitioning from one quick holiday into a full holiday season. And again, what a blessing that the crew came in. But it makes a perfect time for us to dive into this message together. Uh, and to do that, I'm going to share with you a gift that was given to me a long time ago. And this is a gift I believe holds a success to life, and, and a successful life. And I'm going to be quite honest to say, I don't use this gift nearly often enough. So as I confess that, I'm going to assume you're with me on that, and I'm going to share it with you. So as I do that, I want to share with you uh, just a little bit to lay the foundation as we're going to go through this morning, because we're going to hit a lot of scripture, and we're going to bounce around, and I will try to go slow, because I tend to talk fast, so stay with me. So you may, not, you may or may not know, because uh, we've got many new faces, and just for my knowledge, now that we're here, how many of you have been here at CBC for more than 25 years, if you would raise your hand? That is a good crowd. I've been here more than 25 years. Yeah, give them a hand. How many of you have been here less than two years? Less than two years. Wow, give them a hand as well. That has zero purpose for this sermon. That was just for my, my knowledge. <laughs> Over COVID, my wife and I became the blessed grandparents of five grandkids. We went from zero to five. Um, we have five beautiful grandkids, three boys, two girls, and four of those five are three years old or under. Some of them are in the room, so I'm going to be careful. We have the privilege of, uh, I say we, I get the privilege of helping babysit them one day a week. My wife does it two days a week, the, the four little ones. And if anybody knows anything about toddlers or spent significant time around toddlers, who here has spent time with toddlers? <laughs> then you know they can be exciting, they can be a blessing, but they can be challenging and they can be exhausting. And I think one of the biggest reasons they're challenging and exhausting because they always ask one big question. Why? <laughs> why, 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 why? Part of the reason that, that question is so frustrating is we understand it's a good question, but they should be asking other questions. They should be asking questions like, what and how? <laughs> but they tend to ask questions that we think the why is obvious. We think the why is obvious. Why can't I touch the fire? Why can't I lick the dog? Okay. So you, you laugh because you understand that. It's a beautiful thing to watch a toddler move forward in their knowledge and their growth and their understanding, and as they start to ask bigger questions. Uh, but this too is often frustrating as they move into the next phase, because when they start asking what, they don't ask how. And they just jump into things without asking how, and they just create havoc, and they just create messes. You know what I'm talking about? For those of you that don't, I will give you an example. Teenagers, your day's coming. <laughs> Our grandkids love to help Grandma cook. I enjoy sitting back and watching the dance Debbie gets to take as she repeatedly says to them, don't touch that. Hold on. Don't open that. 
Put that over there. That's not where that goes. Wait a minute. Hold on. Stop. Okay. That sound familiar? Okay, it's that's, that's a joy for me to sit back and watch. <laughs> now that they're getting a little older, uh, they know about more of the whys, so they're starting to ask those what questions nonstop. Okay, what is this? What's this for? What does this do? What happens if I touch this? What happens if I poke this? What happens if I open this? What happens if I stick this in there? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> this stage is, <laughs> is just as exhausting um, because they want to do something and they want to figure out how to do it all by themselves. And in many ways, that's important. For example, when my wife says, when they say, what's next when they're making cookies and my wife says, we have to put eggs in, they're going to figure it out all by themselves. So the eggs will get cracked or they may not get cracked. They may get cracked on the counter. They may get cracked on each other. They may get put in the bowl. They may not get put in the bowl. The egg shells may go, you know what I'm talking about. The key thing for those of us that work with toddlers and love toddlers, be it grandparents or parents or siblings or friends, is we want to teach them how. How to do something correctly. How to properly crack an egg. How to properly add the ingredients. How to mix the ingredients. If any luck at all, how to clean up when they're done. Okay? The issue is they don't care how. They don't really care how. They just want to do the what. They just want to dive in. They just want to smash things. They want to make a huge mess. And the key is until they, they finally learn to ask how, it'll just continue. Now, it's easy to make an example of toddlers, but you, you can see where this is going, because I, as your pastor, can assure you that I'm going to make the argument that all of us suffer the same thing in our relationship with God. Do you agree? Yeah, you probably don't, because I'm going to point it out this morning. <laughs> I'm going to be gentle, because let's be honest, we all do it too much of the time. Well, you, not me. Okay. <laughs> We're very good at asking God, why do I have to do something the Bible tells me to do? Why do I have to go to church? Why do I have to put money in the offering plate? Why do I have to go work in the children's ministry? Why do I have to help pick up chairs? Um, just question after question after question. We're great at asking why. Hopefully, as we mature, we eventually get to where we ask, what? What's my role now that I'm in high school? What's my, what am I supposed to act like in my job now that I'm a believer? What do I do now that I'm a husband or a wife? Okay. What am I supposed to do as a parent that doesn't come with a manual? What am I supposed to do when I get bad news from my doctor? What am I supposed to do when I start to worry about things that I can't control? Like with a toddler, God has given us the answer to those questions in his word, which is helpful, but like a toddler, we so often decide that we want to figure out the how. He says what, we say, I can figure it out. When we ask, what am I supposed to do now that we're a follower of Jesus, he tells us. But often I use my own wisdom, I use my own experience, I use my own knowledge, my own preferences, my own likes, my own dislikes, and sadly, my own warped moral compass often to decide how to do things. I'm going to give you lots of examples. In marriage, for example, God tells us what we're supposed to do in our marriage and how to make them successful. And I've picked two verses that are kind of sandwiched this whole long piece of scripture about it. The first one in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Later on, it says, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But so often we look at our own definitions of those words in the instructions and decide how we're going to approach that. I 
will decide how I will love my wife as Christ loved the church based on my unparalleled wisdom and my brilliant knowledge and my grand experience, and she will have to feel loved. Isn't that how it works? (laughs) And she'll feel loved just like Jesus loved the church because I brought how to do it. Like a toddler with a pair of scissors. (laughs) Have you ever seen a toddler with a pair of scissors? (laughs) I can be shocked at the mess I make of my own marriage because I brought my own wisdom to it. I decided how to apply those rules. But we're going to look at some things because what a blessing. God tells us how. This morning I want to look at the biggest instruction, the biggest how instruction I believe God gave to most of us, but most of us don't follow near enough. So as we step into the Christmas season, this is what I want you to do. I want you to view this as a gift. I want to encourage you to view this as a gift, that something that says, I can take this in and I can give this as a gift to my children and my grandchildren and those around me. This, this how piece. This is something that we as a church need to make part of our culture and part of our DNA. Are you with me? All right, here we go. We're going to pick up in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. If you turn with me there or just follow along on the screens... For the big question, what am I supposed to do now that I want to follow Jesus? Here's one of the key answers, and there's several scriptures. I picked this one. But this is the what question. What am I supposed to do? Starting verse 12, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Easy enough, right? That's the what. (laughs) So the answer to the question of why am I supposed to do that, let's go to the toddler question first. Why am I supposed to live that way is clear in here. It gives us some pieces of that, because as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, and I like how the NIV words, it says, holy and dearly loved. Think about that. Before I move on, let's spend some time there so we can really wrap our heads around this fact. There are three things I want you to to walk away, so let's not pass this by. First off, it says in here, God chose us. He chose you and he chose me individually. It's easy to recognize he chose us as a church. But do you often think about the fact that he chose you personally? Out of all humanity, he picked you. He asked you to be his child, but we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't somehow impress him. We didn't clean up our act enough to be righteous for it. God chose us because why? Because of who he is. Secondly, it says we are holy. Does that challenge you? Do you question that? Holy means something set apart for God, something consecrated, something sacred. God chose you to be set apart and sacred to him. Think about that. You and I both know that isn't something we earned, and if you're like me, I've really tried to be holy. I've really tried to clean it up, which is great. I don't want to diminish that. God tells us in several places, strive for holiness, work to be holy. But you and I both know we can't achieve that in its fullness. It's something we will work the rest of our life for. So how does God call us holy? Because he didn't say in that scripture, people trying to be holy. He said, holy and dearly loved. So how did we become holy? Christ exchanged his holiness for our unrighteousness. Amen? 
He gave us his holiness. The third why for acting this way on the list is we are beloved or dearly loved. God dearly loves us. Some of us have no problem really wrapping our head around that. We recognize and we fully understand. Well, fully is a big word. We get the fact that God loves us. We don't struggle with that. But sometimes we can be disrespectful to it. We can be dishonoring of it. But there are others in this room that actually have a hard time believing that, have a hard time accepting the fact that God dearly loves you. And can you imagine what we would be like if we were able to really wrap our heads around that and internalize that and live for that? So if, like a toddler, I can understand the why of what I'm supposed to do in this list a little bit, what is he telling me I'm supposed to do in this list? Well, let's look at the verses. It says I'm supposed to put on a whole bunch of characteristic traits. That means to do it intentionally, like putting on clothes. This is the way I'm going to every day choose to act. I'm not going to wait till it magically happens. I'm not going to wait till I'm wonderfully motivated. I'm going to set about making these things happen. I'm to have a compassionate heart. I'm to be kind. And I'm using me, but you, you should apply this as well. I'm to be humble. And that doesn't mean just not bragging. It means to put other people first, to put others before myself. I'm to be meek. The, the NIV uses the word gentle there. I'm to be gentle with people. I'm to be patient. That means with other people. It's funny when somebody comes to me and they, they want to talk about patience. What they, what they usually mean is when they call their doctor and get put on hold and they want patience. Or when they get stuck in traffic, they want patience. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about with other believers. It means giving other people the space, the grace, the love, and understanding to work through their own issues instead of being judgmental. I'm called to bear with others, which is more than just putting up with them. It's so often funny how we take that and say, okay, I'm just going to put up with people. It doesn't mean that. Like with patience, it means to recognize they are created in God's image too. They are dearly loved by God too. So I get the privilege of walking with them on their journey. I get to bear their journey with them. It also says I have to be forgiving. Why? Because they deserve my forgiveness? No, because God forgave me and paid for my sins. What if they don't ask for my forgiveness? Am I still to be forgiving? Of course. <laughs> I need to have the same grace and extend the same love for them that Christ gave to me because Christ gave it to me. And how did Christ give me? He, can, he, gave, he forgave me completely, but he also forgave me restoratively. He forgave me in such a way to create the relationship, not just to get out of guilt. And it says, above all of these things, I'm supposed to put on love. And again, I like the term put on. I'm supposed to intentionally choose love. And it says love is the thread that ties all those together and it binds them together in perfect harmony and it ties them together in unity. I'm supposed to recognize and treat people with actual and genuine love. I'm supposed to let the peace that that brings, the peace of Christ in my heart. In this list, it's a peace I'm supposed to have with other believers, uh, especially my church family, and that's what it's driving at. But I'm also supposed to look at the things that divide me from other people. Let's think about that in the church. There are things, there are ideologies, there are politics, things that divide us. And it says I'm either supposed to fix them or ignore them. And it means fix or ignore the issues, not fix or ignore the other people. 
because very often that's what we try to do. I'd rather fix you or ignore you. But it says, no, I'm supposed to either fix the issue or ignore the issue. Now, that's a sizable list of things we're supposed to do. And it's just one of several lists. There's many of them in the Bible that I, I looked at. Okay? Um, but I want to get to the next part, the how. How do I actually pull off this list? How do I do all of that? But I want to be real honest, and I want you to take an honest look. The real question we usually ask ourselves is, how do I look like I'm doing that? How can I pull all that off without actually having to change what I am inside, what's going on in my head, and what's going on in my heart? How can I convince other people that's who I am? So going back to dealing with toddlers, this is one of my favorite things. I see this in stores. I see it when I taught school. I love this. It's to watch when a couple of kids, especially siblings, they're playing around, they start to get in a fight, and one of them does something wrong, and they hit the other one, and the parent tells them to do something. What do they tell them to do? Say you're sorry. You ever watch that? For those who have never participated in this childhood ritual, here's how it usually sounds. Sorry. <laughs> okay. And how do the parent follow it up? Do you know the next step? There it is. Say it like you mean it. <laughs> We're encouraging them to go through the motions and check the boxes, but what we really want for them is to genuinely be sorry and legitimately apologize. Okay? So how do I genuinely and legitimately put on this list of traits? How do I actually do that instead of just go through the motions? Well, it's found in the very end of verse 15. And for those of you who were looking in your Bible, you said he didn't complete it. So here's the end of verse 15. What's it say? Read it with me. And be thankful. Is that really it? <laughs> Is that really the key to success? Is that really the how of all of this stuff? Well, let's keep going. Picking up in verse 16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know what you're going to get the privilege of doing? You're going to get the privilege of seeing me wear these for the first time in public. <laughs> That's kind of a welcome to the club, woo, isn't it? <laughs> woo! I can see they're filthy. <laughs> I apologize for that. So I can read and listen to the Bible, the Word of God, the very Word of God, but how do I get it to dwell in me richly? How can I correctly teach and correct others? How can I be impacted by singing and the communal worshiping of God that we do corporately every Sunday? How do I have thankfulness in my heart to God? I have to have thankfulness in my heart to God, so how do I do that? And how do I successfully do anything in life and it says, whatever I say or whatever I do, and in my desires to do it correctly in the name of the Lord Jesus, by giving thanks to God the Father through him. Take a moment and think about how big that is and how small we tend to naturally make it. That's a big thing that we shrink down to a manageable size. Many of the Old Testament customs and traditions and festivals and ceremonies and feasts, and they have a million of them that they had in the Old Testament, many of those were set aside for the singular purpose of giving thanks to God. In fact, we have set aside an entire day, which we create into a season, just to celebrate this. And we did it this last Thursday with Thanksgiving. But how much of that holiday do we spend worrying about cooking and baking and logistics and traveling and getting the chairs set up and cleaning up and putting away and telling the kids to keep their hands off of that? 
You know what I'm talking about, what we do with the holiday that's supposed to be Thanksgiving, but how much time do we actually spend giving thanks versus fretting and fussing and worrying about things that really are small in comparison? How often is the actual holiday of Thanksgiving more frustrating and exhausting than it is an actual blessing? But be honest with yourself. I'm going to be honest. Most of us say grace before we eat our meals. I at least hope we do. Okay? And this is following an example that Jesus Christ said himself in the Bible in several places when he prayed before food. But in reality, it's easy for this to become kind of a pre-meal ritual, something that we just do quickly before we eat. And we may pay attention to the words and we may say them, uh, but how often is it really a response to something that we are actually a moment of gratitude? It sort of looks like a parent telling a toddler to say thanks. And what does a toddler do when you say, say thanks? Thanks. Okay. It's followed by an immediate response with almost zero sincerity. Now, before you hunt me down when I'm all over and say that I'm very sincere and I take it seriously when I give thanks, I don't question that you actually are. But what I want to know is I believe we genuinely are sincerely grateful, but are we taking the time and putting in the effort and the thought and the energy to really let those verses sink in, to really be thankful? In Romans chapter 1, it describes uh, and kind of this list of humanity's fall from grace. And it's a step-by-step thing where it talks about something humanity did and then God's response. And you just watch this, this degradation of our relationship, this downward progression by which mankind walks away from this relationship God desired to have with us. And in each step we, wake, we take away from him, it finishes up with God saying, you made that step and this is where we're at. And it finally, at the end of this list, it talks about a total depravity of mankind. And it says, God gave them up to the, a debased mind, I've got to put these back on, and to do what ought not to be done. But I want to look at the very beginning of that. How does a depraved slide start? How do we begin this walk away from God? So in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 21, it says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the first step to walking away from God is diminish who he is in our hearts and our mind, which is characterized by no longer giving thanks. So I want you to use that as a bit of a barometer in your life. If you're finding yourself less and less thankful, less and less grateful, then that might be this characteristic of saying, I see that I'm sort of drifting away from God. Because one of the things that I, I love to watch is when somebody first comes to accept Christ as their Savior, they first fully mull it over and they make that step. They are the most grateful people on the planet. They recognize they were saved from themselves. They were recognized that they were saved from a, a, a perilous eternity away from God. And they are grateful. And then it's kind of sad to watch us drift away from it. Ephesians chapter 5, and again, I, I'm going to bounce around through some scriptures, so bear with me. Ephesians chapter 5 draws a contrast between a lover of the world and a follower of God. And in the center of that, he's going to make this statement. So I'm in Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to pick up in verses 3 and 4. So he's talking about, again, this contrast between someone that loves the things of the world and God. And he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, covetousness um, must not be even named among you as, a pro- as, a, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place. But instead, let there be what? 
thanksgiving. It's interesting to look at this list and see those as opposites. But we're to see them as symptoms of what's happening inside our own heads and our hearts. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus makes this statement. And I'm in verse 45. It says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And I'm going to be so bold as to say, his or her mouth speaks. So how do I pull this off? How do I change? What do I need to do, and how do I do it? How do I, how do I fill my heart with good treasure so it comes out of my mouth? Let's slide back to Romans again, but this time we'll be in chapter 12. Verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern uh, what is the will of God, what is, a good, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So simply put, I have to stop letting the world tell, tell me how to live my life, and I have to change myself by changing the way that I think. I have to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I have to change the way I approach thinking. That way I can understand what God's trying to tell me, which is pleasing and perfect. It's the only solid way to live my life. So how do I stop conforming to this world and become, become transformed? How do I actually change the way I think? Let's go on. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. And it says, and he, and this is Jesus talking, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. Okay, that's a, that's a great big what for us to figure out how to do. There are three alls in there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, love the Lord your God with all your soul, and love the Lord your God with all your mind. My question is, how do I even begin to love God with my heart, soul, and mind? I'd love to shift into all of it, but how do I even begin to do any of that? I can accept that I'll spend the rest of eternity sinking into that. We all will. But how do I even start? And I want to go back to that very basics. Let's do this one. James chapter 1, verse 2. This is another challenging one. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Who's read that one before? And went, that's impossible. Let me rephrase it for you. It says, consider it a joy or a blessing when you're going through a difficult time, which is going to come in many forms. How am I supposed to find joy when I'm struggling or even suffering? This doesn't make sense. How am I supposed to be joyful when my doctor uses words like cancer or dementia? How, how do I find joy and be happy and, and praise the Lord when my bills and my bank account, my bank account don't balance up? How am I supposed to be joyful when my kids are struggling or my marriage seems to be falling apart? How am I supposed to be joyful if my grades are bad or if I'm lonely? We're going to get to the answer to this. <laughs> Here's one of my favorites, and I'm going to read the opening and conclusion of this because it's a longer piece. So I'm going to read in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25, then I'm going to drop down to verse 33. Again, Jesus talking, he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than, about, or more than a food and the body more than clothing? And then it goes down and gives the answer to that. It says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
and all these things will be added to you. So verse 33 seems to be the how for verse 40, or 25, but I want to know how do I really do verse 33? How do I really put for, or seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it sort of echoes this when it says, be anxious about nothing. Okay, we have to recognize anxiety and worry are very real things, and they love to hold hands with depression. And it takes a grip on us, and then we want to be silent about it. So how do I actually find a way to work through anxiety and anxiousness? How do I quit being overwhelmed with worry for my kids and my grandkids or my finances or a bunch of other things that are quite serious and important? How do I seek God first? Or how do I seek his righteousness? How do I do what it says in Psalm 46, 10, when it says, and just be still and know that he's God? How do I stop my mind from spinning over all the things I can't control when it seems to be spiraling out of control? The key to that answer, or the key phrase, is, is that to the key to the answer to that is that three-word phrase, and be thankful. How do I become thankful? How do I fix my heart and my mind and my attitude to actually become thankful and a person of gratitude? We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 3. This is a good one. It says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is a word we use a lot, a word that's also found throughout Scripture. We see it in lots of places, but it's one that we so often half apply. The word repent or repentance. It basically means recognize you're going in the wrong direction. You're going in the opposite direction that God wants you to go. And what repent means is I want you to turn around and go the other way. Make sense? It's an easy one to understand, but I say we so often only half apply it because most of us take repentance to mean just stop doing what we're not supposed to be doing, which is half of it. If we recognize that sin is wrong, sin is moving us away from God, we're supposed to turn around and do what? Go towards God. Do those things that move us to God. But very often, we just take repentance to mean I'll just stop sinning and I'll just, I'll just stay right there. I'll just quit doing that but we have to move the other direction. So what's the first step to moving towards God? Throughout Scripture, it says it's gratitude and thankfulness. That very first step is gratitude and thankfulness. So again, I, I'm, I'm kind of dwelling on this, but I want to ask an honest question. Can we actually change the way we think? Can I actually change the way I run my mind, my mindset, the things that go in it? I can change the way I look to you guys, but can I actually change what happens in my head? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take, cap take every thought captive to obey Christ. What that means is through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us as believers in Jesus Christ and lots of practice, we can actually take control of how we think. We can take control of the thoughts that we let dwell in our brains. It's a conscious act and it takes effort, but we can control what we choose to let live between our ears. But again, there's more. So how do we start being grateful? The first thing is we have to identify what to be grateful for. Make sense? Otherwise, this is who I am. I'm a master and an absolute pro at focusing on the things that I want, 
and the things that I need and the things that I don't have instead. I can look to the little bit left over that I don't have and completely be ungrateful for the many, many, many blessings. And let's be honest, the way God spoils us for the little things left. Now, I'm the administrative pastor here at the church. That's my role. And I spend a lot of time on logistics and running of the organization we call Community Bible Church. And I partner with many people. And I'll fut and I'll fuss and I'll fret over needing a few more people to work in our children's ministry, which we do need a few more people to work in our children's ministry. A little commercial break there. Okay. But in the process of being so worked up and so worried about the absence of two or three people, I completely missed the, the blessing of the dozens of people that are faithfully over there every Sunday morning. And let's give them a hand, by the way. Okay. We need more workers in the lots of places, but I fail to recognize those that come up here every Sunday and lead worship, or those behind the, the board back there making sure that we have a good visual display. I miss the people that clean the church and, I, and paint the church and decorate the church and make coffee, and I could go on and on and on about the scores of people who do things, but I tend to be one, instead of being grateful for those, I focus on the two or three more people that we need. Is there anybody like me? Don't have to raise your hand. Okay. We can call that pessimism, but I tend to, be, I tend to focus on what I want instead of what I have. Um, I am particularly, as the, as the pastor or the executive pastor of the church, good at worrying about finances. And we have a budget vote coming up. Um, and I believe that I am um, particularly struggle with this for two reasons. One, I'm responsible for making sure we can accomplish many of those ministries. So I've got to work with Sabrina, who does a fantastic job with the books, and we have elders and deacons that do a lot of great things, and the Lord provides, but there are times when we get struggling, but I'm also going to be honest, my paycheck is dependent upon what we do with that. So I not only get to worry about it as my job, I get to worry about it at home, okay? But in my 22 years on staff here, we've had several times where the bank account's gotten low, and I get my stress and anxiety level go high, and we get to worry about things, but guess what happened? God took care of it every single time. There's been a few times where we've had to make some adjustments and we've had to say, hey, let's look at a few things. But in the end of it, God always came back and said, you know what, we'll restore the money that you were short and you got all worried about it. But what happened? In all my fretting and all my worrying, I'll confess, I missed lots of sleep, but I never missed a meal. Okay? You're laughing at that because it's evident. Okay? I never failed, failed to pay a bill. I never failed to do anything that we needed to do financially. But I worried about it instead of praising God about it. I can get so focused on that little bit that I missed the massive blessing. So for the record, and just so you can share in the blessings that I get to share, and I'm going to share some things with you that many of you don't know about that we do as a church, and these are really cool. And I'm not going to talk about budget. I'm going to share with you some things that we do outside of the budget. This is money that you guys have contributed extra. As many of you are aware that we're working on raising money to pay off our mortgage. Our goal is to pay that off by 2030. We just had a special offering for that. And again, we believe that the reason we want to do that is because we could use the money that we spend on our mortgage to do ministries better. But we also recognize the world's getting darker, and it's going to be more difficult a few years down the road. So we're going to take this opportunity now to invest in the church of tomorrow, correct? So that's why we're paying it off. And just so you know, paying off our mortgage since we started this just a few years ago, we've raised over $146,000 to invest in the church of tomorrow. Okay. 
35,000 of that this year alone. Okay, that's not budget. We're still paying our mortgage payment, but on top of that this year, we've raised $35,000. That's, in, that's incredible and worthy of praise and thanksgiving. Did you know we have a scholarship fund? You do now. Okay. <laughs> you have opportunity, and we, didn't, we, we, we just recently realized we've never explained this. We've never given anybody that cares about this opportunity to invest in it because we've never publicly talked about it. So when I'm done here, if you ever want to talk about putting some extra money in the scholarship fund, we have one for our graduating high school seniors. Okay. To date, to date, we have given out scholarships to 33 students over the years, totaling almost $86,000. Okay. Okay. But it gets better. Okay. The majority of the funds that we sent out went to schools where they will match a church scholarship fund. So the money we send out got doubled. And I couldn't tell you what that amount is, but we personally have invested as a church family $86,000. And you didn't even know we had a fund. <laughs> For those of you that have been here less than a couple years, that is part of the reason I wanted to see your hands. We have a benevolence fund as a church, and we call it the elder fund. That's a fund where we take money as an extra offering once in a while, and we use that money to help people in need. If you came to us and said, hey, I'm, I, I can't make my rent, or I'm struggling with my bills, for whatever reason, or I need food. We also do it with people out in the community. If somebody comes and says, hey, I need diapers, okay? We as a church have said, we want to take an offering for that. Traditionally, we do that offering when we have communion. We do it at the end of it. But you guys have been so generous for so long that the money built up that we said, we can stop doing that for a while. So we haven't taken an offering for that benevolence fund in quite a while. We're still giving the money out, but you guys have blessed us. Since 2001, we've given out over $158,000 in benevolence funds. Okay. And it's interesting because we believe that you guys, through the Lord's leading, have blessed us with that money. So oftentimes people will want to talk about payback or repayment of that money, and we tell them that's not what it's for. This is money that the Lord has blessed us with, so we choose to bless you with, because we've all been in tight spots. Anyway, my point is, when I sit down and pray about our finances, what do I focus on? When I pray to the Lord, I can, I can pray to him about the things I worry about, and I can express my concern, and I can express my need to control it, and my need to have all power over it, or I can choose to express gratitude for what he's done over and over and over. I can choose to give thanks, okay? And I can say that in most areas of my life. Most of the areas in my life would be so much easier than the places that I struggle if instead of worrying about the things I can't control, I worried about being grateful for the things that I recognize He's giving me. I'll talk about my relationship with my wife, my own marriage. I can choose to be grateful for the many ways she loves me and blesses me, and I can celebrate every day what a great gift she is to me, and I can look back on the day that we met, and I can look back on the day that we got married, and how much I loved and cared about and so cherished her, and what a gift that I thought she was back then. Hold on. Okay. Okay. Because you got to take it for what it is. Or I can get focused on the very, very few things she doesn't quite do the way I wish they were done. And I can get upset about those, and I can get bitter about those, and I can create separation about those, and I can allow things in our marriage to become more focused on the few things that aren't quite the way I would want them to be. Or I can remember that she's still that same gift. She's still that same blessing. She still blesses me every day. She's in the room. I should make her stand up, but I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. 
Okay? The choices that I make about how I focus on my relationship with my wife will determine the way that I treat her and the way I focus on her, and it will flavor our entire relationship. If I treat her like I'm grateful that she's there, that I'm grateful that she's my partner, that I'm grateful I get to see her every day, how is she going to react to that? Or if I treat her like I'm frustrated or I'm not quite satisfied or I'm cranky, okay, and I can tell you right off the bat, my history proves this out because there's ways I've treated her both directions and I can see what it does to our marriage. What about my job? I can apply this principle all over the place. There are things about my job that are difficult and frustrating at times, but guess what? My job is a huge blessing. Going back to the very first fact that I even have a job. How often do I get frustrated about a job and forget to even be grateful that I've got one? And it's a great job. Okay, but I'll let these negative things take up all of my emotional energy instead of being grateful. But the overriding thing to focus on and to change to an attitude of thanksgiving is, sec- is simply recognizing who God is, who God is to us, and who we are to God. God is God. I wish I could explain it better than that, but that's the way he said it. He described himself by saying, I am. We've talked about this in the past. Okay, there's no more. There's, no, there's nothing outside of that. God says, I am all love. I'm all power. I'm all mercy and all grace. There's no more beyond me. There's no beauty outside of me. I'm all of that, and I love you. I've picked you. I've chosen you. Is that worthy of praise? Okay, if we accept the gift of salvation he offered to us through Jesus, and we do have to accept it, but it's offered, then he becomes our loving father. That's who he is to us. And we are his adoptive and dearly loved children. That's who we are to him. He has made us his dearly and beloved children. And and, and in that, he's made us lots of promises. And I had a bunch of them written down, and for the sake of time, I got rid of a bunch of them. But I'm going to share with you just some of those promises. Hebrews 13, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. John 16, again, this is Jesus talking. He said, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me, Jesus, and believe that I came from God. Ephesians 1, he predestined us for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. John 14, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So as I wrap up, and as we move into this Christmas season where we celebrate the birth of our Savior, what's going to be your focus? What gifts are you really going to give beyond just the actual physical presence? What mentalities, what concepts, what philosophies, what principles are you going to teach your kids? What thoughts are you going to let let dominate your own thinking? So this Christmas, I'm challenging us to let's start defining ourselves as people of thanksgiving. Let that be what we pass on. Let that be what we give to people, that we are so grateful to our living and loving God that we are a people of thanksgiving. Amen? Amen. Let me close with this. As one of your pastors, I'm going to steal this, this writing from, first, or from Philippians chapter 1. As one of your pastors to you, it says, here we go. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all, for you all making my prayers with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that who, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. 
For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve of what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we can't even begin to express what you are to us, Father, but this morning we've come together to thank you for your love. We've come together to thank you for your goodness and your blessings. Father, we are so spoiled as people living in this country where we're free to worship, where we're free to do as we wish to do. We're so spoiled that we worry so much about the things that spoil us that we forget to be grateful for the very foundational things. So Father, this morning, we thank you that you loved us. We thank you that you paid for us through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your adoption. We thank you that we get to be your people. And then, Father, that we get to come together as family, that we get to come together every weekend and celebrate. Father, we thank you that we get to love each other. We thank you that we can be partners and bear with each other in very significant ways. Father, I ask that you change the way we think. I ask that you change the way we approach life so we can actually live as people of gratitude and love and thanksgiving. Father, we just praise you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.